few days before the new year, I received an email from the organizer of Man Camp, Roy Lujan. He asked me, first of all, to be a speaker at Man Camp, because there were three other men that he asked as well, three other fleeces, as he called. <laughs> and uh, even before I responded to him, two of them had declined. Um, and then, uh, and then before too long, even though one had said yes, he eventually declined, leaving me with four messages to prepare. And, uh, last year at Man Camp, Roy had asked me one Saturday if I could introduce him as a speaker. He was a, a preacher at Man Camp last, uh, last year, but also being the MC, I figured I, I need to introduce you, because, <laughs> you know, you, He's usually there talking every gathering. People know Roy. So it'd be like as if I asked one of you to just introduce me one Sunday is what it felt like. And um, But I did know he would feel a little awkward because there was just, you know, introductions to the speaker every night. And, and I think more so he wanted somebody to just, in official capacity, to pray over him. And so I said, sure. But during the worship service leading up to Roy's speaking, I felt inspired by the Holy Spirit to read a passage of Scripture. I say it was the Holy Spirit because the passage of Scripture was in no way brought up before during that weekend. It wasn't something that I even heard in the music, hence why I just felt like it was the Holy Spirit prompting me. And so it was actually Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. And that happened to be the theme that Man Camp is about this year. And I, so I said to Roy, well, of course, if you remember last year, he says, that's why we made it the thing. He says, I felt like whenever you shared that scripture, a lot of people felt like it just, wow, they needed to hear that. <clears throat> so, all that to say, four sermons, and uh, I, you know, many of you maybe know, I'm kind of an overachiever, maybe, <laughs> when it comes to preaching, but I do want to give Man Camp my all. And so I found myself a little overwhelmed. And I felt like I had a few options uh, before me. The first option I was tempted to take was to become a recluse workaholic. And it wouldn't be nice for my wife and kids as I prepared messages for man camp and messages for Woodland Friends every week. The second option was to just skim on my preparation for either man camp or Woodland Friends. But then I felt like I would be doing a disservice to one or the other. So I went with a third option, and that is... I want to give Man Camp and Woodland Friends sermons that were well prepared for. And so in order to do that, I'm calling these next three weeks uh, cross-examined for two, two reasons. First, it's about the cross. We'll be examining the cross. But secondly, I am borrowing from three sermons I preached mostly to my phone right after COVID hit and we shut the church down for four Sundays. And I figured, yeah, some of you probably saw these online, but not all of you did. And for those who did see it, I'm always told, Kevin, if you preach a sermon that you preached a week, a month ago, we'd probably forget. So, if you, some of this sounds familiar, this is why. You may have heard it before on Facebook. And I went back and I deleted those videos now, so you can't go look now <laughs> to see what's coming next. <laughs> and I deleted the audio tracks off of the, the podcast. So, But anyways, I just feel more comfortable offering you fully prepped sermons, although you've heard them before. I would have you turn over to Numbers chapter 21 to a story that is 
probably more understood by way of what Jesus says about in John chapter 3, which we will touch on. However, at least whenever I've heard the sermon preached on, it seems less examined just the story itself. Always people seem to be preaching from John chapter 3, and then they just point you, oh, and this has kind of happened in Numbers 21. Well, I wanted to do it a little backwards. Let's look at Numbers 21 first, and then see what the New Testament, how it uh, interprets it. So Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9 is where we're at. I do ask you, invite you to stand in honor of hearing the word of the Lord one more time this morning. And we'll be reading verses 4 through 9. Then they, Israel, set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So there is food, but they just loathe. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you, and intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Let's pray. Father, a lot of things to wrestle with in this passage. Why did you send the serpents? Why are people dying because of it? Why would you do these things to people you love? Father, help us to have our minds transformed to see things the way you see things, to understand the severity of sin, but also to understand the intense, jealous nature of your love. Help us to trust you as a father. Help us to have a right fear of you, not a wrong fear. Most of all, say what it is that you desire to say and have your way in this message and have your way with your people. As I ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was sent a video this past week from a sermon of Billy Graham. I don't know if you heard of him. But I believe he was expounding a little bit on the story of Jonah. It was just a short clip. Not the entire sermon, but he said something along the lines of, if we choose to run from God... It might be that we have the resources to run from God. It might be that we have a way and a route to run from God. It might be easy. In fact, many times it is easy to run from God, and we might be successful when we run from God. Dare we say it might feel good and be pleasurable and enjoyable, but then there always comes a time, or there actually always comes a time when we do feel like we have succeeded. However, just as sure as there comes a time when those pleasures and those joys and and celebrations begin to fade, and a storm comes, maybe a fish comes, (laughs) 
And we wake up like the prodigal son, stinking of pig filth, (laughs) without a dime to our names. And I couple that idea with this. I wonder where you are right now. Are you facing snake bites? Are you and I running from God? And maybe the running isn't as pronounced as Jonah's or the prodigal son's. Maybe we're even part of the body of Christ. Maybe we're marching with fellow soldiers of the Lord, as it were. But there's that part of us, like the Israelites, complaining, whining. Like the Israelites in the Exodus. The the Exodus story is probably one of the, if not the, focal event in the first five books of the Bible, if not the Old Testament of the Bible. Sure, King David is a highlight and on par probably with the significance of the Exodus story. But God's deliverance from the entire, of the entire race of Israel, out from under the clutches and the enslavement of the mightiest empire on earth at the time, that's not something that just to read through lightly. And in Numbers 13 and 14, Earlier in Numbers, we read about Joshua and Caleb and ten other spies, one from each tribe, heading into Canaan, where much of the promised land would be taken and conquered. Joshua and Caleb come back saying, yeah, the people there, they're big and scary, but God promised us the land so we can take these guys. The land is flowing with milk and honey, or coffee, I mean honey. (laughs) So let's do it. The other ten... Not so much. They're just big and scary. That's all we have to say. (laughs) The people rebel. And there they first said, Why would you bring us out here to die? Let's go back to Egypt. Moses had to intercede uh, for them with God then so that God wouldn't wipe them out. And the punishment was put to this 40-year wandering. I'm not even 40 yet. So that Joshua and Caleb's generation, the believing ones, would enter the land. Well, that's where we find our text today is here they are 40 years later. The beginning of Numbers 21, right before we pick up, a Canaanite king goes out to try and attack the Israelites. The Israelites pray for victory and then they get it. So Israel, Israel, gets their first victory over the Canaanites. They're coming to the end of their 40-year wanderings. The promised land is in sight. But then perhaps this victory leads to their impatience. They begin saying the same thing they did at the beginning of their wanderings. And in fact, this is in, in fact their seventh rebellion, as it were. And we know seven is a number of completion. So the idea is actually they're back at square one. They're complaining. (laughs) is made full circle, as it were. What have they learned? (laughs) Verse 4, Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So, this is a far out of the way detour to get to the promised land. It's like if you drove, I don't know, through Osaka up to St. Mary's back to Moscow. (laughs) And the people became impatient because of the journey. So it's almost like the Israelites got a taste of victory over the Canaanites. 
And now they're taking another detour. Well, we beat those guys. Why are we taking another detour? Not entering the promised land. And suddenly they're just getting angry. It's been so long. Either give us the promised land, or just send us back to Egypt. Just get us out of this horrible condition. Right? Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no food and no water? Well, and we loathe this miserable food. So by this time, they had already been receiving manna, or the bread from heaven, and apparently they had their fill of it. Apparently, manna's taste was like wafers with honey. So Exodus 16.31 tells us, Sounds good. I could probably eat waffles every morning for maybe a month or so. <laughs> but there would be a day, I'm sure after 40 years, where, yeah, I'd get tired of it. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Fiery serpents. There are serpents already in the desert. Usually a wide berth would probably keep you safe. So this has got to be a lot of serpents. Snake dens. But I want to throw a wrench in the works for you. This Lord here, we know by virtue of believing the Trinity, is Christ. But also, by virtue of biblical comparison, Christ is clearly named as the one who sent the fiery serpents. We'll come back to that. But for now, people are dying from these snake bites. Such a good God. Verse 7, So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. You know, I think many of us, myself included, have a problem with the Lord sending snakes and people dying because of it. But it's interesting here in verse 7, it seems without batting an eye, the Israelites own it. Like, the Lord sent the snakes, people are dying, we're the guilty ones, we're dying out here because of snakes, and it's our fault. When I wonder if you or I are programmed to be the victim at times. Sure, I'm lousy, but we have a harsh God to send snakes our way. First of all, I bring this verse up a lot, but Ezekiel 33.11 speaks into this. And notice that the context is in Ezekiel 33 is similar. Israel is sinning and suffering judgment because of it. But God says there, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Back in our passage, instead of blaming God for the serpents, instead of doing what you or I might do in our 21st century Western context, the Israelites immediately express remorse. In fact, that's God's purpose in any judgment. John Calvin would say, commenting on this passage here in Numbers, these two things, as we are aware, are necessary in order to appease God. First, that the sinner should be dissatisfied with himself and self-condemned. And secondly, that he should seek to be reconciled to God. The people seem faithfully to fulfill both of these conditions. 
when they of their own accord acknowledge their guilt and humbly have recourse to God's mercy. It is through the influence of terror that they implore the prayers of Moses. First, they were angry at God in the first place. But no more. Rather, they, they may realize that when God removes His hand of protection over them, the elements or the serpents are free to attack. And when they see the error of their own ways, so again, they come to Moses imploring, intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. This becomes a sign or a symbol of faith. You know, it takes faith to believe that simply looking to a bronze serpent on a pole will heal one's wounds. Another commentator named Joseph Benson would rightly tell us, by having the Israelites look at the very symbol of their judgment, the Lord is having them acknowledge, this is the judgment that you, Lord, have justly brought upon us and only you can deliver us from it. Do you hear the cross in that? Friends, you and I deserve the cross, and when we look to the cross of Christ, we should both see our salvation and our punishment. Maybe our punishment first and then our salvation. (laughs) Because Christ is suffering what we should be suffering. Just as the Israelites see a symbol of the very punishment they're escaping, so are we when we see Jesus. If you don't believe Ezekiel when he says God never judges because he takes pleasure in the death of the wicked, which I would obviously implore you to believe Ezekiel since he's in the Bible, but Jesus connects the gospel to this happening here in Numbers 21, and he calls it an act of God's love. Read with me in John 3 in this familiar passage. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. And then, this is where He calls it an act of love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Adam Clark, another commentator, makes the connection, I believe, plain for us. He says, that as the serpent was lifted on the pole, so Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross. And that as the Israelites were to look at the bronze serpent, so sinners must look to Christ for salvation. And that as God provided no other remedy than this looking for the wounded Israelites, so He has provided no other way of salvation than faith in the blood of His Son. And that as He who looked at the bronze serpent was cured and did live, so that he he that believeth on the Lord 
Jesus Christ shall not perish, but have eternal life. Hear that? But I do have that wrench I want to pull out that I threw about Christ being the one who sent the fiery serpents. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul clearly states that the wanderings of the Israelites serves for our instruction. More specifically, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul starts going through some of the things the Israelites did in the wilderness, and he comes to our story. Now, I put a long footnote in there, but I believe the correct word here is Christ. But if you want to read the footnote on your time in your bulletin, you can. However, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9, Nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. You hear that? Some of the Israelites put Christ to the test and were destroyed by serpents. And then to reemphasize verse 6, Paul again says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul sees close relation from the wanderings in the desert to our lives in Christ. So what I want to do now is go through this passage again and then pull out the spiritual truths for the Christian, the new covenant reality. So back in Numbers 21, 4 and 5, we read it again. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. I want to ask, are you ever impatient, Christian, for the rest that Hebrews 4 promises? The ultimate Sabbath rest in Christ. Do, do seasons of wandering ever make you impatient? I don't know. Do long winters of deaths, illnesses, and surgeries ever make you feel impatient? Wonder if you ever feel like, well, Christ on the cross indeed maybe accomplished something. I'm set free from sin. Or I'm no longer slaves to sin. But then you have the world to endure. Then you start realizing that the world in their own blindness and slavery, they seem satisfied with where they're at. But this world just weighs on you and eats at you. The book of Hebrews, 3.16, chapter 11, as well as other places, is, is salted with intimations that Egypt can symbolize for us the captivity of sins. The place where all of us were delivered from, especially in Hebrews 3-4, through 4, the author of Hebrews compares uh, the promised land to our promised place of rest. And he uses the rebelling and the complaining of the Israelites to encourage us. He says in Hebrews 3, beginning with verse 12, Take care lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. How many of us enter into those wilderness seasons and we find ourselves starting to long for Egypt? Or how many of us do we start to complain like the Israelites? One of their complaints was about the waffles. I mean the manna. I guess I'm hungry for waffles. But it's interesting, in John 6, we see this exchange about manna. See, some Jews say to Jesus, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus is the bread of heaven and better than the manna that the Israelites received. Nevertheless, I wonder if it sometimes starts to lose its bite in our mouths and we start putting our hands to bread less satisfying. Sometimes we enter enter those wilderness seasons and we find ourselves, since we have access and since we really have Egypt all around us, if we're not careful, we retreat to our Egyptian ways. And so when the Israelites start to complain, we read again, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may receive the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. As hard as it is to swallow, God still sends snakes. Does he not? Sometimes these are snakes that are permitted, as in the enemy wants to do it, and God says, well, I'll I'll let it pass this time. Other times it could be snakes that are divinely appointed. Sometimes the so-called snakes could be the temptations and allurements to lead you away from Christ. It could be the political opponents who call your views on social stances, whether it be marriage or abortion or entertainment choices, backwards and informed and by out-of-touch commands of Scripture. Or it could be legislation that aren't only doesn't only prohibit, but also demonizes the very things that Christ is for. And the author of Hebrews would tell us, for consider Him, Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and discourages every son whom He receives. 
It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness. See, the fiery serpents led the Israelites straight back to Moses to pray for them. Mission accomplished. (laughs) What do the fiery serpents that you face do for you? Sometimes we're bit, right? Sometimes the pain hurts. Sometimes the snakes bite and the ordained serpents reminds us that true life is actually really found in Christ. The bread of heaven doesn't lose its sweetness. The wandering, the sojourning will eventually lead us to a Sabbath rest saved for believing hearts. Because every discipline of God has meaning, has purpose. It's meant to yield fruits of righteousness for us. If you have kids or if you're a parent, any decent parent should know that our discipline isn't heartless. It's not meant to inspire a dread more than a reverential fear in our children. Our discipline shouldn't come from a heart that wants to control. No, it should come from a heart that wants to yield the peaceful fruits of righteousness out of our children. If they're producing fruits of unrighteousness, they need pruning, hence the ordained rod, the ordained serpent. Makes sense? When God sends fiery serpents to you, it's not, God, how could you? It's, God, what are you wanting to prune in me? I'll give you a clue. You probably already know. (laughs) Right? What are you trying to yield in me? The serpents that God has ordained to handle sin is, like the serpents in the wilderness, serpents that are fatal. Because here is the reality as the author of Hebrews has told us in our first quote from Hebrews 3 that that some wandering, some of those wandering in the wilderness wanting to go back to Egypt, they close their ears and they harden their hearts. They don't listen to his voice. It's sad. Again, if you're a parent, you have those kids that don't listen to you immediately and that bothers you because you don't want there to be a day when you're yelling at them to get off the road and they don't listen to you. You're you're yelling at them to come back away from the cliff of the wonderful sightseeing tour you're doing at Seven Devils or Glacier National Park, if that might be an example and not real. (laughs) And the serpents show up and people are getting bit and they're dying. But there's a way of escape. There is a way wherein God has taken the very serpent that bites people fatally on the hill becomes crushed on the head. Numbers 21, 8 and 9 again says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. 
And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. When the snakes bite, and you are feeling the pain, and you are in the desert seasons, and you are guilty with sin, turn and live. Turn and live. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. If we look to the cross that's been raised in the desert, we would be saved by it. If we see Christ on the cross in my place for my sin, we might be healed by Him. And when the Israelites were healed from their snake bites and lived, so we are healed from the sting of sin and live. I don't know where this hits you. Here's what i got to say. It's real easy. If snakes are biting you, repent. It's as I said, when we looked at the Israelites out there in the wilderness, you know, and I said I wanted her for our 21st century Western attitude versus a Jewish attitude, you know, how are they so easily not offended by God sending them snakes? Why do they so quickly come back to God and say, you know, intercede for us? But I wonder if it's not a cultural problem. I wonder if it's a sinner attitude versus a saint attitude. See, I said, again, perhaps the Western mind would be shocked and question God. You sent the serpents. That's so mean. Whereas the Jews accepted it and repented. You know, maybe there were some Jews who said, bronze serpent, why would I trust God if He sends the serpents in the first place? And that's the point. If He sent the serpents in the first place, it's because you and I need to repent. See, if we're distant from God, if we're turning back to Egypt in our heads and hearts, it's because of Christ. Always because of Christ. The raised cross in the desert means that this doesn't need to be a day of judgment. This need not be a day of condemnation and death. It can be a day of redemption, a day of life. So if snakes are biting, repent. Turn to the cross, swallow your pride. Thank God even for the snakes that He got you off your wandering road and He's channeled you back onto the right road so you can listen to Him whenever you're near the cliff or running out in the road. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I've been there as a father disciplining my child and wondering, I don't want my son to take this the wrong way. You have an entire world, currently 7 billion, including all the people who've lived before, to take care of. That's nothing to you, though. You created the entire universe. However, you deal with us, especially if we're in Christ, as a father who deals with his sons, disciplining us. So, Father, if we're out here and the snakes are biting, instead of blaming you, help us to yield the fruits of righteousness. Prune us. Help us forgive us of the sins that we have been committing and help us to repent. Help us to trust you because you are trustworthy. That you have our best in mind. Sometimes our vision of what is the best and your vision of what is the best 
don't even agree with each other. So help us to reorient our focus and our perspective. Help us to view things the way you view things. Not because you love control, but because you made us to fellowship with you and you want us to fulfill what we've been made for. Living in communion with you is where we will best be satisfied. So help us to get there. Thank you that you've provided forgiveness through the cross that you've raised in the desert with Christ on it. And help us to trust in the Holy Spirit and to say yes and to obey him to each and everything he would call us to do. And we love you, Jesus, and we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.